When last we left our heroes, Paul the Young had rallied members of the House to pass tax reform legislation after a screw-up by Mitchell the Turtle in the Senate. Mitchell himself had just endured a nasty fight in Alabama and looked forward to a peaceful year of judicial confirmations. Meanwhile, our protagonist, Trump off the orange, had signed into law the tax package to spark an economic revolution, all while battling back the horde of Sauron led by Nancy the Pelosi and Focahontas the Poser. Then our protagonist boarded his winged stallion Air Force One and flew off to the magical realm of Mar-a-Lago. But all of them, they were deceived. For as our heroes left for Christmas vacation, a shadow crept across the land from Pyongyang to Beijing to Tehran. So now our heroes return at a dark hour as the people of Iran take to the streets. Oren of Utah retreats from the field and Kim Jong-un puts a nuke button on his desk. Thus begins a new year of Atlanta's Evening News. Yes, it does. A brand new year at this dark hour, literally, as the sun sets. And it is frigid outside. Absolutely frigid. I'm back. Did you miss me? It's 511 here in the city. And the phone number, if I still remember it, is 404-872-0750-1800 WSB Talk. And believe it or not, they haven't changed the name of the station. Still, it's been a long time. I imagine any day now it's going to happen. So we've got protesters in Tehran, uh, in Iran. Now, let me give you some perspective on this. Um, Serious perspective here as I try to remember to get into the golf screening program, I grew up in Dubai. My dad worked in the Persian Gulf and on a clear day could see the southern islands of Iran. One of my best friends' grandfathers had been a senior member of the Shah's regime. The family fled Iran because of uh, Khomeini's takeover, Khomeini's takeover. During the 1980s, we had bombs placed in our school in in Dubai uh, by people sympathetic to the Iranians wanting to kill a bunch of Americans by blowing up the American school. The Iranian regime is not a good regime. They are not good people. And when you think of the Middle East, you tend to think of two things. You either think of Dubai and, and the Potemkin village that they built there. All of that stuff is fake. Most of those buildings are empty, by the way. Or you think of your traditional scene from Saudi Arabia with men on camels, women in burqas, men in disjashes, um, sitting around drinking pots of tea. Well, the Iranians are different. The Iranian people are very, very modern. They are very tech savvy, uh, highly educated. Um, They should be a Western nation. And they're not a Western nation because the theocratic dictators who run the place keep them in a third world kleptocracy. The Iranian regime funds terrorists to come into the country and kill their own people when they're not funding Hezbollah abroad. And what we're seeing is the great unraveling of the narrative of Barack Obama's legacy, uh, where even the New York Times last month was saying the Iranian people 
were finally united with their theocratic oppressors against Donald Trump. It turns out that's not so. One of the things else that you need to understand, though, is what's happening here is that this is not a middle-class uprising in Iran, although, it, well, it's starting to be. What it started is a very poor uprising of the poor in Iran, the poor in the, the other cities outside of Tehran. They started the uprising. It was not an upper middle class. It was not a young. It was not an Arab spring. It was the poor who are really upset about economic prices, who know Iran has gotten a bunch of money back from Barack Obama, and they haven't used that money to help their people as Barack Obama said they would. They've used it to fund terrorist enterprises around the world with Hezbollah. And now the middle class is joining the fight and Iranian soldiers are joining the fight, putting down their arms and joining with the mob. This looks to be not riots and not protests. This looks to be a revolution. Time will tell. What's happening here? Well, it, it, it was very interesting to see a number of editorialists and supporters of the Obama administration pushing out the story that the best thing Donald Trump could do was be quiet. Well, that is exactly what Barack Obama did in 2009. As the Arab Spring was unfolding, Barack Obama stayed silent on the Iranian protests. He was happy to side with protesters everywhere else, but not Iran. Iran, a terrorist regime whose people were uprising. George W. Bush, in the early aughts, the early 2000s, he stood with the Iranian people. And while they did not throw out the theocrats, they were able to undermine an Iranian presidency and, and bring in someone who was allegedly more moderate. Now, he wound up not being uh, nearly as moderate as some would have liked, and the new guy is even less moderate than him. But the fact that the Obama people and the media want Donald Trump to stay silent says a lot about their inability to process what is happening. And I've got to say, the New York Times has been running pieces that sound like they're written by propagandists for the regime. Let me pause on that, though, because there is something else here worth noting out of a, an abundance of fairness. I have been deeply critical of the media coverage of the last few days. If you've been keeping up with me at The Resurgent, I haven't been completely on vacation. I have been writing and noting that much of the media coverage has been pro-Iranian regime. And CNN, in fact, when it first started covering this story, CNN started putting up stories about the government counter-protests that read like press releases coming from Tehran. And eventually CNN changed and started doing more in-depth stuff. They fixed the problem. The New York Times hasn't. And, of course, there are a lot of people who have been very critical of, of the president, and they are so wedded to the Iranian deal from Barack Obama that they can't change. But here's the thing. In fairness to our media operations in the West, they've all been on vacation. Many of the new newscasts that you have seen over the last 72 hours were pre-recorded. They were recorded to make it look live. I have participated in those programs in the past. They look like they're live. They say that they're live, but they're not. I do that sometimes here. I'm sympathetic. I'm live right now because it's 517 and 51 seconds. But some of them, some of them are all prepackaged, pre-recorded, and made to look live. And so they had to bring in crews to, they can't turn on a dime, these major news organizations. You would think that they could, but they can't. Institutionally, they can't. 
And so they had to bring people in. They had to try to get visas into Iran because they can't just show up in Iran like you can in some countries. They had to get visas, and the Iranian embassy isn't giving visas. <coughs> Excuse me. So they had to try to figure out ways to get people into that country to find out what's going on. And it's been very difficult for them. As people are getting back to work today, the coverage is changing and growing. But I do think it is worth being a little fair to them and noting this. But it is also worth noting that of the voices that they were putting on TV, it is not a coincidence that many of those voices sounded like they were allies of the Iranian regime because they were and are. See, a lot of these people are so invested in protecting the precious that is Barack Obama's legacy, they can't do anything to undermine the Iranian regime because he cut a deal with the regime, not with the people of Iran. And they claimed it was for the benefit of the people of Iran, and the people of Iran are in the streets today rioting, burning down places, raiding gubernatorial mansions in, in various provinces of Iran because... They're not actually seeing the benefit of the deal Barack Obama claimed would be for them. It was all a lie, but for many members of the media, they have to protect that lie because they need that lie to stand in contrast to Donald Trump. It is 26 after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. The phone number is 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. And I didn't even have to look that up. Those of you who have signed up already, and there are a number of you who have, there, there are actually 338 of you to be precise, who, um, because of your participation over the years with our activist items and whatnot, listening to the podcast, you signed up for advance notice of the gubernatorial um, RSV, the gubernatorial live lounge interviews that we're going to do. We have scheduled now Lieutenant Governor Cagle, Secretary of State um, Kemp, and Senators Hunter Hill and Michael Williams. We're working on the others, but the links are out there. Uh, you have to RSVP. There are 30 tickets per interview. If you check your email, if you previously signed up, if you check your email, you will find an email from me and you get first dibs at RSVPing and getting a ticket registering for the events. Now, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, very straightforward. We are inviting in all the major gubernatorial candidates. We are actually restricting it based on polling because there are a bunch of people running. Uh, and we want to make sure that we can fit everybody in. We've got a uh, limited calendar availability in addition to space. But we have extended invitations to the Stacey Abrams campaign, the Stacey Evans campaign, um, Hunter Hill, Michael Williams, Brian Kemp, Casey Cagle, and um, is it Clay Tippett's? I, I'm, I got I to gotta get his campaign on board. Um, those are the big ones. We may extend it as others come into the race, and there's rumors we may get one more candidate coming into the race on the Republican side, maybe. Um, but the big issue here is that you're invited and you are invited to come participate in the live lounge. You will be allowed to ask questions, although I'm going to make everybody write out their question and I'm going to vet them and read them from stage. Uh, the rest of you stick around in the next 30 minutes. I'll tell you how you can come 
But if you've got the email, check your email from me and see if you can find the link. I want to give you first dibs. I sent the email several hours ago. And when we come back, Orrin Hatch is no longer going to run for the Senate. Will Mitt Romney be joining the Senate from Utah? I'll tell you what I know here on WSB and the fallout in Mississippi. back it's eric erickson here 39 after the hour in atlanta and cold 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 outside my goodness gracious um just cold outside did i mention it was cold the phone number 404-872-0750-1800 wsb talk and congratulations to the university of georgia truth be told i had to turn off the game last night because i was convinced if i continued watching they would lose as typically happens when I watch LSU or Georgia. They lose when I watch, so I turned it off. And I think I single-handedly gave them the win, so they should put me on the 50-yard line instead of making me pay $13,000 for a ticket. I'm just saying. I knew they won because I could hear the yelling and cheering throughout my neighborhood because I went outside with my telescope to take pictures of the moon so I could avoid the game so that they could win. Speaking of winners... Orrin Hatch will not be winning another term to the Senate because he is not going to run. He's going to retire. Now, there have been rumors for a while that Mitt Romney wanted his seat. And I had been working the phones late this afternoon as word broke that this was happening. And what I've been told by people is that Romney is seriously considering this and that there was um, essentially... Orrin Hatch bought himself time by suggesting he was going to stay after Donald Trump made the big push to keep him. Orrin Hatch bought himself time to keep out Boyd Matherson, who was Mike Lee's chief of staff. Boyd announced he would not run. He's joined, I think, a think tank out there. He's not going to run. Orrin Hatch saying essentially he is going to run, cleared the field, allowing Mitt Romney time to put everything in place and lockdown support, and now Orrin Hatch is going to walk away and Romney can walk into it. The question remaining is, does Orrin serve out his time or go on and resign and let Romney be appointed? And the thinking right now is that Orrin Hatch is going to serve out his time and just let there be an election that Mitt Romney can walk into. Uh, the key question is whether or not uh, guys like Steve Bannon play out there and try to stop Romney because uh, the media sets Romney up as someone who would disagree with the president. And in fact, Mitt Romney has come out several times and tried to take the elder statesman of the GOP position and has criticized the president several times in the past few months. But by and large, I mean, when you look at some of the people who are highly critical of the president, from Nikki Haley to Rick Perry to Bobby Jindal to you name it, Many of them are inside the administration now loyally serving the president. I think that if Mitt Romney goes to the Senate, uh, the media, whether Mitt Romney wants to or not, the media will try to couch it as a, um, as a Mitt Romney versus Donald Trump situation. We'll see whether or not he actually goes. I think he will. The other question is Mississippi. Thad Cochran is going to step aside. This happened at the very end of the year. A lot of people missed it. Thad Cochran, who 
just a few years ago, uh, the GOP nearly broke in half over the, the Chris McDaniel primary against Thad Cochran. Remember, uh, Chris McDaniel down in Mississippi beat Thad Cochran in the primary. They went into a runoff, and Republicans, led by Haley Barber and the Senate Republicans, went out and rounded up Democrats to save Cochran, knowing a Democrat wasn't going to win. Now, from what I'm hearing, the governor of Mississippi flat out is refusing to appoint Chris McDaniel to Thad Cochran's seat. And what I suspect is going to happen is another Alabama. We're, we're going to have a nasty, dirty, knockdown, drag-out fight. I think that the Republican Party, well, you know, l- let me delve deeper. Let's, let's turn our attention to Mitchell the Turtle, Mitch McConnell in the Senate. McConnell wants yes-men. He does not want a fractured Republican Party. McConnell's standing within the party outside of the Senate is tenuous. He's not very popular. In fact, he's only at 30% in Kentucky right now. Not a popular guy. And the main reason we had the situation in Alabama, and I, I do mean this very seriously, the overwhelming reason we had the situation in Alabama is because Mitch McConnell decided it would be much easier to beat Roy Moore in a runoff than it would be to beat Mo Brooks. Mo Brooks made his central campaign platform getting rid of Mitch McConnell. And so McConnell and his Senate leadership pack poured millions, literally millions of dollars into Alabama to defeat Mo Brooks. They defined him. They threatened fundraisers in Washington, telling them if they ever raised money from Mo Brooks, they wouldn't be able to raise money for anyone else. They did everything they can to make sure Luther Strange was going to be in the runoff with Roy Moore. And the reason they did that is because they knew fairly well that Roy Moore was going to be in the runoff, just given his stature and his support of the Republican Party. This was never about um, getting Luther Strange and someone else in the runoff. It was always about getting Luther Strange in with Roy Moore, thinking they could beat Roy Moore. Well, obviously, Luther did not beat Roy Moore. Why? Because Luther Strange was a corrupt Alabama politician. And the voters of Alabama did not know about Roy Moore's allegations, but they knew that, um, that Luther Strange was corrupt. So they went with Roy Moore, and we now know how that work turned out. But again, it was McConnell nursing grievances against Mo Brooks, pouring millions of dollars into the state to stop Mo Brooks from getting into the runoff, to stop Mo Brooks from inching ahead of Luther Strange. And what did they do after Mo Brooks lost on election night in the primary? McConnell's leadership pack announced it would be spending money to ensure Mo Brooks was defeated in his congressional reelection. They wanted to send a very strong message that if you dare oppose Mitch McConnell, he will wipe you out. And then look what happened in Alabama. I suspect strongly we're going to see a replay of that in Mississippi because Chris McDaniel has already said he's not supporting Mitch McConnell for leader of the Republican Party in the Senate. And so the governor of Mississippi says there's no way he is then going to support Chris McDaniel for the Senate in Mississippi. So there's going to pick someone and there's going to be a campaign and it is going to be a nasty, nasty race. And it's all about saving Mitch McConnell not about advancing President Trump's agenda or anything else. Unfortunately, and this is increasingly the problem for the GOP, 
is you have a McConnell wing and you have a Trump wing. And while they give lip service to each other, they're both trying to control the party. And a house divided isn't going to stand up to the Democrats. That's just the truth. after the hour the phone number 404-872-0750 1-800-WSB talk i am eric erickson this is still wsb believe it or not when we come back i want to delve into the tax cuts because suddenly bernie sanders wants to make them permanent and i will tell you why there is some polling data out there also the georgia legislature meets in one week that's right folks Hold on to your daughters and your wallets. They're all coming to town. I will give you the breakdown of what seems to be shaken out this year in the legislative session. Hint, it's an election year, so there's a lot of grandstanding and not much else. And, well, we got kids and toys. If you want to come to one of the WSB Live Lounge events with one of the gubernatorial candidates, we have four of them scheduled so far. Text WSB. Well, heck, what's the number? <laughs> I have to look up the number. Three four, WSB to 345-345. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. It is nine after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is WSB in Atlanta's evening news. You can also go to the resurgent.com every day. The phone number here, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Um, let me remind you guys again, we are going to do, beginning January 25th, a series of conversations with the candidates running for governor. We've invited Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, we have gotten four Republicans committed thus far. We've gone ahead and scheduled them. They are Brian Kemp, Michael Williams, Hunter Hill, and Casey Cagle. We are going to allow a live studio audience, and we will allow that audience to also ask questions of the candidates, though I will ask that these questions be in writing and given to me uh, so that I can weed through them to make sure they're not repetitious to what I've already asked and whatnot. I'll read the questions on stage and, and call out to the person who uh, asked the question. You'll be able to participate, though. If you would like to participate, what you need to do is you need to text WSB to 345-345. And what will happen is you'll get back a link to the resurgent where you can see each person's interview. Click that person's interview that you want to go to and RSVP. You must register. There is limited seating available. There are 30 seats per spot and they're filling up. So if you want to go, you need to do that. Text WSB to 345-345 and follow the links through to the one you want to go to. Now, before I get into tax reform in the legislature, the president has been back on Twitter tweeting about the Palestinian Authority and the Pakistanis. Nikki Haley announced at the United Nations that we are going to suspend aid to the Pakistanis. 
the reason we are cutting off some aid to Pakistan is because the president believes, and he is right to believe this because it's true, that the Pakistani regime has been lying to us and has been aiding terrorists, or at least providing a safe haven for terrorists to live in an, in Pakistan and cross back over into Afghanistan. In particular, we're focusing on the Taliban here, some ISIS, but mostly the Taliban. And he is decide, he has decided to take aggressive action. But the bigger news this afternoon is that the President of the United States has decided to cut aid to the Palestinian Authority. This is rather a big deal. He announced it on Twitter. It does somewhat make you wonder whether or not he vetted it through all of the various government functionaries. But it appears that it's going to be. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, remember that you have been hearing the media lament for a while that the president moving our embassy to Jerusalem was going to cause mass outbreaks of violence in the Middle East. That has not happened. That was predicted by everyone. And it has not happened. Now, what else happened? Well, because the violence did not happen, the Palestinians have been out saber-rattling trying to stir up violence in the Middle East against Israel and the United States. That also has not happened, but they've tried, and the president seems to be responding to this. Now, I, I should correct myself that he is threatening to cut off aid to the Palestinian Authority. He has not yet. And he's doing so because of the peace process, saying that it has stalled and they're not participating. The real reason here, though, is just what I said. It has nothing to do with the peace process. We didn't expect them to want to continue on with the peace process after moving our embassy. But what is significant and notable here is that they're trying to stir up violence against us in the Middle East, and the president knows it. And he is essentially calling them out on social media for doing so. And we should be applauding the president for doing this, not condemning him for doing it. Because he is essentially giving up on the behaviors that past presidents have just accepted as default. Like with Pakistan, President Trump is saying this is unacceptable. This is, I dare say, even despite all my qualms with him, this is a rather grown-up foreign policy that he's implementing here. A very, dare I say, America first foreign policy. Let us get to tax reform. Bernie Sanders wants to make the middle-class tax cuts permanent. What's so interesting is that Bernie Sanders blasts the corporate tax cuts, saying we shouldn't have cut corporate taxes. But by cutting the corporate taxes, we suddenly have $15 an hour minimum wages at several corporations, including major banks in the country. Many Americans got $1,000 bonuses for Christmas because of the corporate tax cut. The individual tax cuts had nothing to do with the $1,000 bonuses. It was all the corporate tax cuts, the very corporate tax cuts Bernie Sanders says we should have done. By the way, these are the corporate tax cuts that Barack Obama himself wanted. Barack Obama, the Republicans cut the corporate tax rate to 21%. Barack Obama wanted it cut to 20%. The Republicans essentially 
did what Barack Obama wanted. And Bernie Sanders is upset about it. But now he's come out and said we need to make the middle class tax cut permanent. Ted Cruz already has legislation to do that. He's invited Bernie Sanders to come on and join him in that effort. I Something tells me Bernie Sanders isn't going to do that. Something tells me Bernie Sanders doesn't actually want to make the middle class tax cuts permanent. Something tells me that if Bernie Sanders were to go along with this, what Bernie Sanders would wind up doing is quibbling over the definition of middle class tax cut. What exactly is the middle class? What exactly is the middle class tax cut? That ultimately is the issue for the Democrats. You see, they said that if these tax cuts happened, it would be economic chaos. The Democrats said, if you cut taxes, people were going to die of alcohol poisoning. If you cut taxes, people are going to die because of the individual mandate going away. If you cut taxes, people are going to be out of jobs. If you cut taxes, economic disaster was going to unfold. I mean, they couldn't come up with better talking points than that. And guess what? It didn't happen. What happened was corporations on their own without government intervention raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour. Corporations on their own without government intervention began people began giving people $1,000 bonuses at the end of the year, including MSNBC employees because they're owned by Comcast. <gasps> corporations did all these things by cutting the corporate rate. And now, after Democrats' complaints, people are seeing the Democrats were full of it. You see, listen, there is a Democratic wave coming next year, and I know many people yell at me for saying this, but it has nothing to do with the Democrats and everything to do with the party in power. The party that controls the White House always loses seats in the off-year elections. The only time that that has not happened, going back to the Carter administration, was George W. Bush in 2002, and that had everything to do with 9-11. The odds are there's a Democratic wave coming. The odds are, given the intensity of the Democratic opposition, it's going to be a big wave. But the odds are also that because the Republicans passed tax reform, they've mitigated a bit of the damage. And some people who might have been fired up to oppose them, including some Republicans, no longer are. Because suddenly they feel their lot in life has improved. And who improved it? Not the Democrats who are running in opposition to the tax cuts, but Donald Trump. They may not like him, but he's put more money in their pocket. And are they really going to risk going and voting for a bunch of Democrats who are going to take money out of their pocket? It's 25 after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. I honestly cannot, I'm now into my seventh year doing this. I cannot remember a first day back on the radio where we ever got any phone calls. And that's not to say just pick up the phone and call because you have something to say. You probably won't get through if it's not topical. But I, I don't ever remember taking a phone call on the first day back. People are just, I, I don't know that people are even mentally back into everything yet, back into routine. You're just here for the news. So I will give you the news. Um, I do want to make one comment, though, about the UGA game last night and the Alabama game last night. 
it was really, really nice to watch football and be on social media watching people's reactions to football and not get into arguments with people over taking knees. It is, I, I am, now I have friends who will debate me, but they're wrong. I am a big fan of college football, much more so than the NFL. And I realize, and I had, hey, we had a group of people over at our house the other night, uh, right after Christmas, and this discussion came up, and I was in the minority in my own house on this one, of how much better the, the play is in, in the NFL and whatnot. It, okay, fine. But the NFL now has gotten so politicized, I don't want to watch the NFL. I don't want to watch it. I mean, I've never been a huge NFL fan to begin with. I've always liked college sports more, college football. I mean, I could do with a year-long college football season and, and no NFL, and I realize some of you would disagree with me on that. But it has been really nice to watch guys who aren't making millions of dollars play their heart out in the hopes of getting to the NFL and not getting all politicized about everything. But at the same time, there is a, a tinge of, of sadness in thinking these guys are headed into the NFL and the NFL may not be there as we know it for much longer. It is very striking to me the number of players who will not let their kids play football. And it's a growing number and they're concerned about brain injury among other things. My wife, actually, before we had kids, she was really, really, really hoping for a boy because she wanted her boy to play football and she wanted to be able to go to the games and she hates baseball. And she has no interest in our kid playing football. Now that we have a son and he's getting to that age, she would much rather him play baseball, which she hates, or even soccer than football because of injury, because we've seen friends of ours who had their kids and in some cases forced their kids to play because they couldn't play. And so they lived their childhood through their kids and just raised miserable injury prone kids. Uh, I shouldn't say injury prone, but highly injured kids. And it somewhat was depressing to see. Now, when we come back, we got to move on from football, get to your phone calls, and the Georgia legislature convenes in a week. Hold on to your wallets, people. It's 38 after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. You're listening to Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. As always, you can go to theresurgent.com every day and see what I'm writing. Oh, you know, I'm, I've been sitting here toying with doing something. This, this, this breaks dramatically from tradition. This is something I've never done before in my entire career on radio taking a call the first day back at the first of the year. But I'm going to from Mark in Sandy Springs. Welcome. Hey, Eric, had a question. What is your understanding of when the individual mandate becomes effective? Uh, it's going away. It's gone. No, I know. Well, okay. It, my, my understanding is it's gone. It's been repealed. Yes. But that it doesn't take effect until 2019. For example, if and maybe I'm wrong, but that's uh, that, for example, if you have no insurance in 2018, mm -hmm. you are penalized for 2018. That's my, you know, I'm just, 
that's what I've I've heard or, or seen on a computer, and I'm confused because it seems like it is gone. Uh, but you know, so I'm just asking yeah. you if you well, know. I'm Googling it right now. Hang on, Mark. Uh, I know you're listening because I can hear the radio. Let's see. Um, yes, here we go. Contrary to a statement that President Trump made Wednesday, nixing Obamacare's individual mandate does not mean that Obamacare has been repealed. The individual mandate, which requires most Americans to carry a minimum level of health coverage, is actually still in effect for 2018 meaning that you may have to pay a steep tax fine if you don't have health insurance, for one thing. So for 2018, yes, it is. Had Mark not called, I would not have known. And even after the individual mandate repeal goes into effect the following year, Obamacare's individual insurance markets, federal subsidies to help pay insurance, and Medicaid expansion are still going to be in effect. So it's not a repeal. The president said that it was a full repeal, by getting rid of the individual mandate, it wasn't. <clears throat> but, nonetheless, the individual mandate is still going to be around in 2018. You still must have the health insurance under Obamacare in 2018, or you will get fined. Now, are you disappointed in tax reform? Do you want to give the money back? Do you want your taxes to go back up? I mean, that... That ultimately, this is rather disappointing to learn, but I'm glad I knew it now, lest some of you go out. Of course, you know, the, the main reason they did this, a buddy of mine is texting me right now as I speak. Hang on a second. Let me make sure I read his whole email. Listening from Washington, D.C., no less, so a bit of a delay here. Uh-huh. Okay. I see. Okay. This makes more sense. The reason that they did not repeal the individual mandate for 2018 is because uh, the, the sign-up period was in November. What do they call Open enrollment was in November. So the, they hadn't even considered the legislation by November, so there was no point in getting rid of the individual mandate for 2018 because everyone got their insurance at the end of 2017 and they're contractually obligated uh, for 2018 anyway. So when open enrollment rolls around in 2018 at the end of the year, or for 2019 at the end of 2018, you won't have to get it again. Okay, that that actually makes sense. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Well, he works in the White House and knows these things. So thank you very much for texting in. Um, yes, so that's why. Uh, open enrollment happened in November and early December for some people for this year. And given that, everyone's already contractually obligated for this year anyway. And so the individual mandate will go away in 2019, meaning your open enrollment in 2018, you don't have to actually do uh, for insurance. Hope that explains it for everyone. That actually does make sense contractually uh, for doing it that way. So the Georgia legislature begins meeting, I think, January 8th. We're about a week away. Are your taxes going to go up? Now, I got to tell you, the more I learn about this, the more I, I need to invite uh, one of the members of the of the Urban Rural Study Committee on because they want to raise taxes. And they want to raise taxes, but I'm not sure it actually amounts to a tax increase. And here's why. Essentially, what they want to do is they want to, if you have a, a cable bill or a phone bill or a cell phone bill, you have a franchise fee, particularly cell phones and cable. You have a franchise fee on your bill. And franchise fees are, for example, all the different companies, they can come in and they can they can provide this utility service for you. 
internet, cable TV, cell phone, what have you. And it's accounted for and budgeted, the franchise fees are, differently from regular taxes. And what the state legislature is is thinking of doing, based on an urban-rural study committee on trying to improve uh, rural Georgia, is they want to get rid of the franchise fee. And instead, they want to charge you a tax. They want to tax your cell phone. They want to tax your cable plan. They're considering taxing your Netflix subscription and your iTunes subscription, your Apple Music subscription, things like that, your Hulu your Amazon Prime, they want to tax those things. That I would be opposed to. Changing the franchise fee over to a tax, I'm not necessarily opposed to. But going on and taxing things like Netflix and and iTunes and whatnot, I think is ridiculous. Nonetheless, they're considering it. Why? They're considering it because there are 18% of Georgians who live in rural areas and they want to expand internet access to those rural, I'm sorry, 18% of Georgians live in rural areas that do not have internet. Many more Georgians than that live in rural areas, but many of the rural areas do have broadband internet. But 18% of them live in areas where there is no broadband internet. And they want to find a way for the state government to pay. Corporations are not doing it because it is not financially viable for private corporations. And so they've decided the state should do it. For those 18%, many of them are in North Georgia where you have the Speaker of the House, the Governor and Lieutenant Governor from, and they want to make sure that area gets internet because they essentially want to encourage people to move to those rural areas and commute or telecommute or move businesses there and get them out of the city. And they think one of the great dividing lines now for people is whether or not there's broadband internet. And if private companies won't pay for it, they want the state to pay for it. And for the state to pay for it, they need a new revenue source. And the new revenue source would be a tax increase. Essentially, actually converting the franchise fee into a tax. And then possibly taxing your Netflix. Will it happen? Next year's an election year. I wouldn't hold my breath. But it's certainly on the table. Remember, if you would like to participate uh, in the WSB Live Lounge sessions with the 2018 gubernatorial candidates, text the letters WSB to 345-345. You will get a link back you can follow uh, to the resurgent and see all of the various um, candidates we have scheduled, when they're scheduled, and you can click through to the Eventbrite page on each of them so that you can uh, RSVP your seat. We are inviting the candidates. Um, we're giving them 10 seats so that they can bring 10 people, whoever they want. Uh, we are allowing 30 people to come through this system. So each slot, essentially, uh, we've got 30 tickets to give away. It is completely free if you want to do it. Uh, just text WSB to 345-345, and you'll be able to participate. We'll also be broadcasting them live on the radio, and we will be live streaming them. It should be a great time. I'm very excited by it. Before we get out of here, there's a story uh, that is just burning up the internet this evening on Vanity Fair, uh, chronicling uh, Silicon Valley's uh, secretive orgiastic dark side. Uh, essentially, many of the millionaire billionaire people in Silicon Valley uh, do all of the things that we're hearing about Harvey Weinstein and whatnot, but they do it largely consensually. Uh, because they've got billions of dollars having these weekend parties where they do lots of drugs and all sorts of other things. 
And I got to tell you, I'm reading through this and there's a mixture of opinions between outrage at the behavior and people saying, well, they got a lot of money and they can do it. It is striking to me that when you lose a defined, shared um, moral compass, then you descend into these anything-goes behaviors. I mean, a biblical sexual ethic would say what's happening here is wrong and bad, but how can you say that it's wrong and bad with a worldly sexual ethic? I mean, that is a worldly sexual ethic. These are people... Um, men and women who are willingly participating. And one of the angles in the story is, well, it's wrong because uh, some women feel pressured to participate. Well, and they shouldn't. That is wrong. No one should feel pressured to participate, but you shouldn't be doing it to begin with. And if you are going to do it, and, and some of the people who are quoted are very clear that we can do it because... Uh, we get away with it, and we like it, and it's not hurting anybody. But is it really? What is the cost to the individuals who go and, and feel pressured to go, even though they don't want to admit it, and they don't want to whine about it? But who's to tell them to stop? There can't be a moral police, a secular moral police, because it's anything goes. They don't want to be like, like the, the theocrats they accuse people like me of being. These things only exist when you get rid of a shared common moral core, and we have gotten rid of that in this country, and we're going to hear more and more stories like this over time. You should go check out this Vanity Fair piece. See you all tomorrow.